Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Okay, welcome back, everybody. This is COVID number 34, which means we have done 35 of these COVID echoes. Not quite 35 weeks because we've piggybacked some weeks. But anyway, today, thank the Lord, Kurt is in a caravan of <laughs> caravan of campers. That's how cool he is going on vacation. Yeah, out to Glacier. And so he tried to be on Echo today, but... Wasn't it so shaky? Did you notice? He looked like he was going over some potholes. Yeah. Just a little bit. He's like, um, if I'm too shaky and distracting, let me know. I'm like, <laughs> nobody's looking at you, I promise, buddy. Anyway, so I am joined today by Erin Foss, our nurse coordinator, extraordinaire outreach nurse. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> She's the one who finds us all of our speakers, pretty much, because, yeah, Kurt and I are lazy. I just stalk people. <laughs> right? That's what you got to do. You got to think big and just annoy them. Anyway, um, this is super cool because usually, obviously, we've been joined by lots of, you know, interview specialists for our addiction podcasts. But to have an extra co-host that's not Kurt, this is this is pretty sweet. <laughs> so welcome, Mary. Should I pull the Kurt? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today, we again, we're... Joined and started by Jerrica Burge from the University of Minnesota. It's super fun to just not do this, Kurt, because he still cannot say her last name. Huh. Okay. Burge. Burgey. Burge. Burge. It's not that hard. (laughs) Anyway, Erin, you want to tell us what you talked about? Yeah. So they did a research study at Fairview U of M um, to examine disparities in diagnosis and treatment with ethnic blah, blah, blah. Easy for me to say. <laughs> That's what Kurt would say. <laughs> Ethnicity and race differences. Um, they looked at underlying health conditions, lifestyle, and behaviors. Um, more to come with that as they will display their results coming up. Yeah. I think this was... it's. It's kind of neat how they just kind of looked in whoever had been admitted to M Health Fairview and just kind of looking at the differences in races for, you know, code status, how long it took them to get vented, ICU, just all of these things to see if there was implicit bias. Oh, nice word. Those are colorful words, right? Nice choice of words. Right? I don't know. She's pretty cool. Um, So, yeah, more to come in the next couple weeks. Um, we're going to start hearing some of the research results of all these studies that we keep talking about. So, yeah, I'm just kind of looking forward to that, too. But So then we moved on to Dr. Connor Ryan, who looked like he was about 12. Sorry if you're actually listening, because you're obviously not. <laughs> but that's a good thing if you look 12 and you're not, and you're almost 40 or 40, whatever. Um, anyway, so he is from Naran Neurological Clinic in the cities. We have been trying and trying and trying for weeks and weeks and weeks, 34 echoes worth, to get a neurologist on. So anyway, we finally got one. So neurological involvement is what he started out his talk with. And in children, interestingly, it is rare to have neurological involvement. Maybe that's because they're already weird. (laughs) 
This is normal three-year-old behavior is with COVID. And in adults, um, displayed as a headache is the most common symptom. Dizziness is frequently reported and complications in minority but occur throughout the nervous system. Yeah, so very vague. Um, I just kind of like this word neurotropism. I'm really glad he defined it. It means an injury to the nervous system for those of us who aren't neurologists. I'm glad you took that slide. I don't think I can say that word either. I mean, <laughs> injury to the nervous system. Neurology is a really cool rotation, and you're really good at it until you leave that rotation, and then you forget everything, I think. But anyway, he said, I like this line, neurotropism for COVID. Not strongly neurotropic, per se. It's an oxymoron. Yeah. For all of us English people. <laughs> <laughs> Um, involves the ACE2 receptors, an infection often heralded with loss of smell from the olfactory impairment. Right. So what? this is what I found super interesting because, you know, this whole loss of smell was not even a symptom of COVID when COVID started. And now it's like the main thing. You know, you drive by a farm in Minnesota, which, you know, we do in Little Falls. And if you can smell the manure, you're like, hey, I don't have COVID. Right. But they said that on autopsies, they actually look at the olfactory bulbs. So, the, you know, the infection comes in through the nose, goes through the cribriform plate into the brain, affects this area. Cool thing is it doesn't seem to spread to other areas of the brain, like things like herpes does and other things does. Um, but then at the end, we asked the question about, well, then how does the loss of taste come in? And he said he didn't quite know that mechanism, which right. was interesting. Right. Because it's, it's totally different. But... I don't know. Maybe it's just because you have so much mucus and weird illness stuff that you just lose your taste. I don't know. But anyway, that was my, you know, whatever. Um, so, yeah, some hemorrhages or edema in subcortical areas, but really not a lot that shows. And it's, it's really nice that at least it doesn't spread to all these other areas of the brain. London did a case study of four pediatric patients um, and their findings were um, in multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, only 15% of them um, presented neurological symptoms like encephalopathy, headache, and focal deficits. Right. So the, I mean, I don't know, good news, bad news, 27 kids, so it's four of them, but they were all in the ICU, which really I think a lot of the peds patients end up in the ICU. They all had this MRI abnormality in what he called the splenium, which I promise you I've never heard of. It's the white matter in the posterior corpus callosum. Again, I know what that is, but it really didn't seem to have any type of significance. It's just something you don't normally see, except it looks to be a post-viral inflammation, whatever. But really, I don't think, it, again, it didn't really show much. All these kids eventually had full recovery. Um, some of the data was limited in a couple, but that was just because it took a long time to get better. But the symptoms didn't seem all that significant. So at first when he said splenium, I thought he was talking about the spleen. <laughs> Again, I'm like, what? Spleen, neurological stuff, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, the cool thing is, I guess, if you're doing a CSF, you're doing a lumbar puncture, CFS is totally clear, which is cool. And he said this a couple different times, whether it was adults or kids. The CSF is not showing any viral anything. It's not showing COVID. It's not showing anything by PCR culture, antibodies. So that's kind of neat. EEG did show mild slowing. EMG, if we're looking at the peripheral, did in some cases show some mild abnormalities. But 
again, nothing crazy. But most of these kiddos were treated with IVIG, steroids, and a kinra. Which, which is an IL-1 and is not commonly used, but good in the ICU, he noted. Yeah, which for kids that don't respond to IVIG, which again, if they're doing that, I'm not keeping them in Little Falls. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I'm sorry if you're a kid and you're sick, you're with COVID, you're going to the cities. Anyway, other pediatric case report series. So he went through a couple different studies. Again, there are some kids that have rash fever, everything with MISC. Again, treatment, empiric IV steroids, IVIG, and Akinra. Again, these kids all did really well. And then another one looking at adults. What they're looking at is, again, more over this post inflammatory cytokine release encephalopathy. So this is where you start to look at, you know, those different patients, the adults that end up in the ICU later post day eight, where they all of a sudden just get this. Some people just fly through COVID and some just get severely ill, but it's always that late that they're always thinking is the cytokine storm, which is obviously where the tocilizumab and their tuximab and anakinra apparently all comes in. So in adults, same kind of thing, the cytokine storm, why it hits the brain, mm. but usually it'll be this ischemic stroke, encephalitis. Yeah, nothing really in the MRI, though, except obviously stroke stuff would show up. White matter in the splenium. He also <laughs> said splenium. <laughs> <laughs> it's like something from Star Wars. Anyway, <laughs> any neurologist listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> Never heard of it. Anyway, adult neurological involvement over 50% of hospitalized patients do have some type of neurological symptom. Yes. Headache, dizziness, altered mental status, myalgia um, came about in a Spanish study looking at adult neurological involvement. (laughs) You know, I think if you're in the hospital anyway for any prolonged period of time, like more than three days, and of course COVID, you're there weeks you're going to have a headache. You're going to have dizziness. You're going to kind of be weird would be kind of my take. We did ask that at the end. Like, is this just related to prolonged hospitalization, delirium, isolation? Yeah. Yeah. There there were some more significant things. This um, obviously loss of taste or smell usually gets better after weeks or months. Not everybody gets better, but it's super low percentages that don't get that back. Um, but, of course, more severe strokes happen. Obviously, we all know at this point that COVID does create this hypercoagulable state. And then there's some demyelinating features, um, ironically, weirdly, in the brachial plexus and peripheral nerves. But that the patterns, if it is seen in the brain, does look a lot like MS. Yep. Are you on the adult studies part of the I am. presentation? <laughs> all right. <laughs> Ah, you can just take this I'll just go with it. These are lots of weird words. Okay, Um, so we're looking at the central nervous system. Again, this weird encephalitis, cephalomyopathy, para-infectious inflammation on imaging. It's all, again, this immune response. So it's like their body is causing all these kind of central nervous system things. Some of them can be devastating, however. Um, Ataxia, confusion, dysarthria, dysphagia especially if it hits the brainstem. How do you treat it? IVIG, steroids, plasma exchange. So it doesn't really change much. Um, but then again, the worst things is this hypercoagulable stroke type thing. So he kept talking about that, talking about that. But then one of the other things is this press, which 
I'm glad he said it and then gave all the words for it because it's an acronym, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome with or without hemorrhage. So this is related to blood pressure. So if people start to have some changes in kind of altered mental status, really make sure that their blood pressure is well controlled. Also, he noted uh, peripheral nervous system presentations such as Giambarre syndrome and inflammatory brachial plexopathy, um, generalized muscle weakness, proximal greater than distal, and no evidence for NMJ impairment. Um, he did also note um, Miller-Fisher is a variant of Giambarre and causes ataxia. There you go. There you go. God, you like way jumped ahead. Did One I? thing with no, I think that's great. Neuro Miller Fisher, <laughs> ophthalmoplegia, ataxia, whatever. Okay, when we're looking back at the stroke, sorry, I keep going backwards, but ironically, people, you know, I remember, gosh, when COVID started last December 9th, to be exact, according to the one dude. Um, Everyone kept saying, oh, this is just another influenza. This is just another influenza. But one of the the things that has kind of started to show is that when you're looking at acute ischemic stroke, so again, this hypercoagulable state, COVID, 1.6% of COVID patients are going to have an ischemic stroke, which you could think 1.6% isn't a ton, but really that's a higher stroke risk than the average. Um, influenza, the increased risk of stroke is actually only 0.2%. So it's eight times higher risk of having a stroke versus influenza. This is why we're giving everybody anticoagulation. Very rare to have a hemorrhagic stroke, but definitely much more common to have this ischemic stroke, hypercoagulable, blah, blah, blah. Even in kids, especially if they have MISC or other risk factors, anticoagulate them. Yeah, and Dr. Ryan also did note that um, out of a Philadelphia study, 60% of people that did have strokes were diabetics. So that is interesting because we all know that that's been a previously hot topic, you know, Mm -hmm. that diabetics are at a much higher risk. Exactly. 95% of them have hypertension. So again, it's all of the same comorbidities we've been talking about with COVID in general, but also increase your risk of... Stroke. So, again, the super rare things we already talked about, Gambare, Miller-Fisher. Um, but then there's this interesting thing, this iatrogenic brachial plexopathy injury. So, think about it. These patients are intubated for way greater than the average of three days, up to three weeks in some cases. A lot of them are being prone, so they're on their abdomens while intubated, which, again, is still is a weird vision in my mind. But they actually get this weird brachial plexus type thing, whether that's from positioning, it's just from being sedated or whatever. Um, So definitely another thing to think about. You know, Erin, you worked in ER or ORs a lot, and you really have to be aware of positioning patients. Gel pads are your best friend. Right, but you don't think about (laughs) that. Like, person's alive and fine, and they're just under anesthesia, and you position them, but you don't think, like, oh, my gosh, could this position of this leg create some weird neurological issue we also did um, active range of motion every half an hour with patients that were in different positions so I would assume that nursing staff are doing the same thing with these patients I wonder I mean it's not talked about a whole lot but you You would definitely think so maybe that should be another study you know I for how the journals that we read I have not seen anything in that about how are they actually caring for all the other 
issues with patients in the ICU, like these prolonged stays. Are they just so busy they can only do what they can to keep them alive and watch the vents? Or are they actually doing this PTOT coming in to help with these things? Or are they just kind of avoiding because of COVID? Right. Oral care. Like how often is that being done, you know? They're all going to get dental caries and lose their teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Moving along. (laughs) (laughs) EEG findings. So some patients show some slowing in brainwave activity. Luckily, nothing was epileptogenic. Glad you took that slide. (laughs) (laughs) Say say that five times fast. Um, But really just discharges were just super uncommon. More generalized versus specific areas, which is good. Um, But that's about it for that. So then he kind of finished. I don't think we really need to go much into telemedicine, so we'll kind of skip that part at the end. But the last big section was on this, people who have chronic neurological disorders. Like, what's their risk? What do you do about them? Yep. So epilepsy, he said there were no significant associations between COVID and patients with epilepsy. Um, So no special precautions or management that need to be fulfilled for these patients. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it is. Also, Parkinson's disease, same deal. Um, Mm -hmm. Not really any extra precautions or management that needs to be done. He did make one comment about this group in Italy um, where they looked at kind of non-advanced Parkinson's disease patients and how they it was all the same. But he did note that those patients in that one study were also all on vitamin D supplements. And, of course, we always try to find these vitamin or natural supplements to try to help with COVID and such. But he made that comment but didn't really know much about vitamin C or zinc. Um, said that he hadn't read any recent studies on that. And then moving on to multiple sclerosis, obviously this is a big issue, especially with neurology, considering that's what it impacts. But one thing they did mention was, you know, especially if they're getting IV um, MS meds to increase the dosing intervals. And that was more just to help minimize the risk to the infusion centers rather than to really deal with COVID in those patients. Um, And same with neuromuscular disorders, just kind of doing EMGs more for safety of the other people around or the people performing. But to me, what it sounded like was a lot of the autoimmune things. Like Kurt and I just talked about this yesterday on the the journal update, whatever, is that they're not really doing much with people who are on immunomodulators and high-risk medications as you'd think. And I guess these patients don't necessarily need extra either, which is good. So couple little things he touched on, you know, long-term neurological things, which, again, next Tuesday we will have um, Dr. Nakvi from the Twin Cities who is talking about that post-ICU, post-care clinic that they have and hopefully some of this post-COVID syndrome that's starting to be described in the literature, but about um, the depression, most recover, prolonged. A lot of it's just, the, again, this isolation, it's multifactorial. Um I did ask specifically about shunts or tumors or pre-existing conditions. Does that make them more at risk? There's just case studies out there right now, so it's kind of a gray zone. Someone asked about vaccines. There's really no post-vaccine neurological issues that they've seen. If it is, it's transient, just like everything else. Um, And again, he didn't really know much about the supplements, so... Um, he did bring up that inpatients were being anticoagulated with Lovenox and heparin. And then did he talk much about outpatient follow-up? You know, he didn't. You know, he, he said typical outpatient, what you'd think in someone who was anticoagulated. But what that means, I'm not quite sure. 
Um, maybe they need to get through the, the symptom phases. Um, hopefully Dr. Nockby will be able to speak a little bit more to that next week. Yeah. Yep. Not much. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I One thing I will touch on really quick with this telemedicine is that, you know, I guess it's gone really well for neurology, which I found really actually kind of interesting because you'd think a neurologist would want to see a patient and test their nervous system stuff. But I think for most things, they've actually done quite well. So how COVID has evolved every type of office visit and clinic is amazing. Yep. So... All right, so with that, I mean, I guess at the same time, although we were so excited to have neurology on, I think I'm glad it took this long because, again, like even at this point, there's still so much that's unknown. And it's probably just related to the fact that COVID just kind of happened and we're all trying to scramble and you look at the things that are keeping them alive, like they're breathing, that you don't necessarily notice the little nuances until after. So I guess more to come with neurology, neural neurological things <laughs> anyway so we will let battle legs take over and again next week on the COVID echo we will have um dr knock be talking about the post-acute care tomorrow on the addiction echo we are having um susan Bolu. i always say her last name wrong i thought it was Bolio. I, I don't know. Right. I don't know. I don't know, but she's talking about how to build a resilience and trauma-informed care in people with historical trauma, especially the Native American community. Super awesome talk she did about a month or so ago. So, Super excited to hear the second half. Right? So, Battle Legs, your turn. Mm-hmm.